Welcome to Innovative Legal Leadership, the podcast where you'll hear from the world's most innovative general counsel and their leadership teams for their insights into the running of a Fortune 500 in-house legal department. The challenges, the wins, the roadblocks, the journey to date, and most importantly, what lies ahead. Let's get into the show. Hello, listeners. In today's episode... I'm speaking with fellow Australian Lisa Mather. Lisa is currently the general counsel of Mars Ripley, and she's taken that position on since um, only April this year, so quite new to her. Fantastic story, Lisa has a great career arc, early time in a law firm in Australia, and then significant stints at Colgate, Palmolive, PayPal, there with Louise Pentland, a number of you will have heard the episode with Louise, which is a fantastic episode. If you haven't, make sure you go back and listen to that one. And then her current role at Mars. So we talked to Lisa about the challenges she's faced, how she wrapped her arms around Mars uh, Wrigley and you know the, the, the future priorities she's got there. And probably more importantly, her journey in getting there, what, what was important to her, what she learned, and, and how important having a kind of a curious learning mindset, which I think was part of uh, Lisa's innate um, capability, something that she didn't have to work very hard at. In fact, only came naturally. I wish I could say the same for myself. So it's a fantastic discussion. So in the usual fashion, sit back, chillax, and enjoy the episode. Uh, Lisa Mather, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you on board. I'm very excited about a fellow Aussie joining me. Looking forward to the discussion. Uh, thanks, Jim. It's it's really, thank you for having me. It's it's really lovely to spend a bit of time with you today. Fantastic. Now, the last time we saw each other, it was in New York. We had a lovely dinner. You're in Barmy, Chicago right now, you tell me. Correct. Yes. Yes. Enjoying the windy city. <laughs> now, Lisa, take us through uh, the Lisa Mather story. Go back to the beginning. How did you get interested in law in the first place? Um, mm-hmm, you've had a mm-hmm. cracking career, an international career. Like many other Aussies, you're fantastic at spreading your wins and travelling. Take yeah. take us back to the beginning, and let's go, and and then we'll uh, we'll take a journey through your career. Look, I'll try and give you the abridged version, Jim, but I I, I might struggle. There's a bit to to pack in. I was never one of those people who wanted to be a lawyer. Like I, you know, I found myself at university in law school with a lot of people who'd sort of like watched LA Law and had this vision for themselves and was sort of all in on on that. And I was, I was yep, not one of that those. That was people. me. Yep, I was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And I, so I kind of, I felt like a fish out of water actually from sort of even before I went to law school in a sense. But I actually came to law because when you study law in Australia, unlike the US, you do it as an undergrad degree, but you do you do two undergrad degrees at once. Yeah. And I I was actually quite I mean I was a bit of an all-rounder, but I quite liked science and maths and things like that. And and so I was really looking for something where I could use both sides of my brain. And so science and law was the course of study. Yeah. That I landed on and I actually had no idea what being a lawyer meant but I kind of figured that it probably had a bit of humanities stuff in it <laughs> that's what I was looking for so um so I enrolled in science law thinking 
I might actually end up being a scientist. I just don't know here. Went through sort of the the five, five and a half years of study and decided to, to pursue the law thing. Yep. Um, I wasn't, I'm, I'm actually not very good with my hands and so I wasn't very good with experiments in the laboratory. Not too good at di- dissecting the, uh, the little rats too? Not, no, no, not, no not, not good with my fine motor <laughs> skills and not good at sitting in a laboratory for sort of, you yeah. know, 14 hours on my own at a time. I really struggled with that emotionally, I have to say. So I decided to go after the law thing um, and despite the fact that I thought if I was going to, to do law, I would want to save the world. I did do that very traditional thing of going and working in large law firms when I graduated. Yeah, Of course I did. And look, I did it for training reasons. Like I I thought, well, that's a really good grounding. So I worked in large international firms for a number of years and did a lot of M&A work and corporate finance work and, and loved that. So I did that. Joined what's now Herbert Smith Freehills in Sydney for a couple of years and then actually moved to Hong Kong and, and worked in Hong Kong for a number of years. And when you were in Hong Kong, so that was your first international stint. Was that still with Herbert Smith or was that with um, no, Colgate? Clifford Chance. Oh, yeah, sorry. Chance. I, worked, okay. I worked with Clifford Chance for a couple of years yep. and then actually worked with Paul Weiss out of Hong Kong as, yep. as well. I was quite curious to see what it was like to sort of work on the American side because I definitely sort of noticed early in my career how different sort of the lawyering and drafting style was. And I was actually quite fascinated by that that difference and just that interplay of language and culture and how that plays out in how you think legally and how law is practised. So, and that's that tells you a lot about me actually and my journey. Like I'm just curious, I'm just a learner. I'm, I was... I was always driven by sort of in the moment and that fulfillment in terms of just learning in the moment. So did that and then went back to Australia after a number of years in Hong Kong and joined what's now Ashurst, but it was Blake Dawson at the time and had a family. So I've got two children, a 19 and a 20 year old now worked there for a number of years. I actually, whilst I was on maternity leave, did an MBA part-time just well, to slow down there, amuse so. myself. Whilst I was on maternity leave, to, to amuse myself, I did an MBA, of course, as we all do. <laughs> but it worked for me. So I sort of I had two children a year apart in quick yeah. succession, which was great. Yeah. But I just felt, because I'd had such a intellectually engaging working life before I'd had kids, I wanted to kind of keep that stimulation going, but I didn't want to be full-time in the office over that period either. So I was trying to figure out how to kind of juggle those preferences of mine. And because I think I'd done the science and the law, I always felt like I was a little bit deficient or faking it until I made it when it came to sort of more corporate finance and sort of economics and business-related concepts. So the MBA was an opportunity to kind of fill what I felt was a little bit of a learning gap there. And actually my MBA, my MBA buddies were an amazing mother's group for me. They were a much better mother's group for me sitting out in the suburbs somewhere at that time in my life. So I, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. But once I'd done that, I really felt that I actually wanted to work in a business, you know, I mean, I always had that thing doing M&A work where you did these really amazing, intense, pivotal projects with clients that you never got to see the ending. It was a little bit frustrating in a sense. Like you'd close the deal, they'd move on and you kind of, yeah, lost that relationship. So those factors were what drove me in-house. 
And of course, the MBA, it's hard to really exploit the skills of an MBA in a law firm unless you're actually going to get into management and those are right. perhaps less than otherwise. Um, but yeah. I can see then, you, if I look at your career in-house, um, significant stints at Colgate, Palmolive, then PayPal as the Chief International Counsel, and only quite recently now as GC of Mars Wrigley. When you go through those phases, tell me about what the key takeaways, what stays with you from those previous positions and then we'll move to your current role. When I think about Colgate Palmolive, I am incredibly grateful for the opportunity that the company gave me to work and live in different parts of the world. So I think it's very easy to assume because a woman has two young children and, and a mortgage, et cetera, um, she may not want to move to the other side of the world and take a random assignment. Yeah. But to the company's credit, uh, after I'd been there for almost two years, they asked me if I'd be interested in taking an EMEA GC role for one of their business units, Hills Pet Nutrition, based in Prague, in, in Europe. And, 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 you took the fa- and you took the family? Yes, Fantastic. yes. So my children were six and seven. And I, and I, so I was kind of a single mum over there and it was, it was a big call. It was a big, yeah. big adventure for all of us. I was quite surprised at how little English, quite frankly, there was in that, in that country. It's like, I remember the first time I went to buy laundry detergent in the supermarket there in Prague and uh, I worked could. in a company that made laundry detergent. So you would think I would know something about laundry detergent. And I came home and I opened the bottle and it was bleach. So, <laughs> like there was just no English on anything. It was quite a, a high bar in terms of just surviving day to day. So I, I would love to double click a little bit on that part and the decision making around your experience around taking young children um, mm. into another jurisdiction. Because I've done that myself when the kids were, mm. um, yeah. I think it was six, eight and ten or something. Yeah. Um, and I've certainly um, got some strong views now having done that. I'd love to get it at this show, or even though it might sound like it's all about me, Lisa, it's not. Um, tell me about your experience, because I reckon there'll be people out there and GCs out there that are in that yeah. stage of their life where they've got young kids and they feel yeah. like their opportunities might be more limited or it may be too risky. I'd love to get your take on young children overseas as part of your career. Yeah, well, look, I um, I'd actually like your perspective as yep, well. I have to. I, say. I will. Yeah. Yeah, but but I I am so glad I did it. Like yeah. it, it wasn't easy, and it was very it was really interesting telling people at home, got this opportunity, yep. going to do it. I've agreed with my company, just some sort of guardrails around yep. how that's going to work. And some people were just like, why would you do that? Or that's just too scary or it's going to mess the kids up. And, I mean, I'm lucky I kind of lived overseas a couple of times before and it was very much a part of who I am. And I think that can be quite challenging things to do, you know, like you get the highest of the high and the lowest of the low perhaps in some ways in terms of the experiences that you go through. But I think you are just such a richer person for having gone through that and it kind of sounds a bit hackneyed and cliched and you don't know nobody knows what it's like to walk in somebody else's shoes and you don't know it until you know you experience it for yourself but I I really still strongly believe it and you know the kids were sort of 
happy and healthy and like there was no reason to not do it in in many many ways in my mind and I mean you can interview them on another podcast (laughs) perhaps they can tell you how that worked for them but I mean they they will say that they feel incredibly lucky to have lived in the places they've lived in. And I have exactly the same experience when my children, who are now adults all in their 20s, when they talk about that time in their life, and that was four years in the Middle East, um, by the time, um, a melting pot of cultures. um, And so when they talk about that experience, my heart just warms because oh, it's so it's yeah. such a beautiful thing it's so fond they talk about their learnings their experience how it shaped them um and yeah. how it made them understand the world was much bigger um yeah. uh, than the place that they were otherwise living in we were living previously in perth in australia so it's almost perth is like an i it might, might be the most remote city in the world but it's like an it's like i call it like pleasantville it's like a foreign assignment <laughs> too jim well it's beautiful beaches, clean, it's beautiful people. It probably doesn't quite have the, let, let, let's say, the multicultural element. It certainly doesn't, okay? But I, I remember saying to the children, the world is not like this. The world is very different. Let's go and see. And I can tell you the contrast was incredible. Not only that, the learnings they had, the eye-opening, the experience, and as a family too, um, uh, I had so myself, my wife, now three children. We just bonded in a way that yeah. I that is that I think is almost impossible to replicate. Agree, um, I totally agree. Yeah, you have to pull yeah. together. Yeah. Anyway, so I for those who've got that kind of opportunity, mm. when the kids are young, I would mm. absolutely rip someone's arm off. My only regret is I didn't do it earlier. Um, yes. And I probably didn't have, um, I think we had a total of just over four years that we didn't have more. That's my only um, regret. Yeah. So I, yes. I would absolutely recommend it. And the more, and we face the very same kind of feedback that you face when you, mm. you know, raise this with it. It was, why would you risk? Um, yeah. I think the risk is the opposite. <laughs> I think the risk is in Me not too. in not doing totally. that. And, and people would always ask me, like, why did you leave Australia? And I was like, and that's kind of like, well, how do you answer that question? And I, <laughs> and I, and I would always say, because I can always go back. Yeah. You know, like, really, what is the downside there? That you don't have a lot to lose, you know. Like, we're, yeah. we're lucky that we can go back. Yeah. Um, but to to not take that opportunity, I agree. Like, there's risk attached to that. Okay, let's move on to PayPal. Chief International mm-hmm. Council there for, I think, about five years. So I assume... You would have overlapped with Louise Pentland there, of course, because I had Louise on, Louise on the yep. show probably last year, I think it was. Oh, uh, fantastic episode for anyone who hasn't listened to it. Um, right. Louise the kind of person when you finish speaking to you think you want to be a better version of yourself and you think you should yes. you should be able to do better. Um, yeah. So yeah. T- tell us about that part of your career at PayPal. Yeah, so... Um, that was a big industry sector change, as you can imagine, going from consumer packaged goods to, to fintech. Um, and I did I did work with Louise uh, throughout my time, Fantastic. my five years there in the company. And um, I mean, a couple of takeaways there from me. I think because of the industry change, um, 
learning about tech was a big learning curve. But as I said before, like I really, I love that. I enjoy, I enjoy that. So I actually enjoyed that learning curve. Um, and the company was very intentional in terms of the background that they were looking for when I took that role yeah. and they didn't necessarily want a deep fintech or tech expert. They were yeah. looking for somebody who had that international experience but had a, an appetite for learning. So I was very transparent with my team as to you guys all know more than me but somehow we're going to figure this out yeah. when I joined. But, um, yeah, look, we, we grew tremendously in the time there. But one of my key takeaways was when it comes to tech, everything, absolutely everything still comes down to people. Right. And that for me was like a huge commonality and light yeah. bulb between the different industry sectors, you know, like it didn't matter if it was this abstract thing that you look at on your phone that somehow moves money miraculously, a bit like electricity. You don't really know how it works, yeah. but it works amazing. Um, it still comes down to people um, to, to make things work at the end of the day. So that was a huge takeaway for me. I imagine, Lisa, that must be quite empowering too in this sense. When you work out, you can go, you go into an industry that you know absolutely nothing about, you come mm. to the, you're clearly successful and you come to the conclusion it's all about people. I expect you'd be mm. saying to yourself, you know what, I can actually do anything. Um, I, can go, I can move into any industry now. I've developed the skills. I know what's that important. And, and it's funny, when, when you think about the way recruiters recruit, they typically go, okay, I need a pharma GC. And so they go, or mm. I need... But, but I just think that's, um, well, I think that's flawed. Tell me about, am I right? Do, do you feel, is it empowering? Yes. But then I think it always comes back to this sort of idea of fit and alignment. You yes. know, like what what is sort of the best or optimal package yeah. for a certain context at a given point in time, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so there's, there's always a bit of that as well, which, and, and look, if I'm feeling a little bit ahead of myself, I can always rely on my children to sort of pull me back and <laughs> put me in that place. So I'm not too empowered, but yeah, yeah. look, I think, I think, and it's, it's part of that journey, isn't it? That learning journey and, you know, figuring things out and, and, um, having a deeper, almost like cellular appreciation of how things work yep. and how you can influence for good and, and influence for, you know, value, sustainable value adds. I think the other thing, though, is for me, the legacy that that has is I, you know, I have some open roles, as you would expect any global legal team to have at a given point in time. And and I'm sort of working with some some search firms in relation to the roles, and I'm really challenging them now into because, as you would imagine, yeah. sort of working at Mars Wrigley, I'll be you know offered a whole pile of sort of like you know food lawyers yep. and yep. people in other consumer packaged goods companies, and I'm like, it doesn't have to be that. Like I, yeah. I want you know, certain attributes and skills, and maybe a little bit more tech because a lot of consumer goods companies who have been around for a long time are on really significant transformation yeah. journeys these days in terms of digitising their organisations end-to-end in supply chains and so forth. So um, I think it's given me that insight, which is empowering in a way, but empowering in terms of how I think about yep. sort of constructs for legal teams yep. now. So, so you joined, I think it was April this year, you've taken on the GC position. Take me through yeah. the first, say, couple of months or so when you're trying to wrap your arms around the function, the yeah. business, what yeah. you're going to prioritise. So how did you do mm. that? And then I'm going to ask you, what did you actually land on to the extent that you can share as key priorities for you? 
I was very lucky to start my role in 2022 and not 2021 or 2020. So I was able to get out and about and meet as many business partners and members of my team as I as I possibly could in in my first year or first nine months or so in the role. And I think that was incredibly valuable because uh, I can only speak for myself. I still feel that those in-person interactions and spending time uh, with people helps facilitate understanding and actually trust, I think, for ongoing yep. working relationships and adventures that you always have in legal teams supporting businesses. So um, a huge amount of just immersion in relationship building yep. was, was sort of a real priority for me with, with my onboarding. And then obviously sort of understanding, getting your head around sort of what the key opportunities are, what the CEO's strategic agenda is, how with a legal lens, but obviously as a business person, how I sort of see that unfolding and my sense of things and where the legal team could add value, where it was really strong, what strengths could I leverage, et cetera. So without giving too much detail, I'll say that there are certain sort of traditional areas of legal practice where there's there's real strength, yep. um, which we're able to continue to leverage, which is great because, yep. you know, we've got a number of billion-dollar brands across the organisation and just an incredible brand portfolio to leverage so a lot of a lot of goods sitting there and then I think you know some of the areas for opportunity which I think many GCs are navigating at the moment um, on their own terms having regard to the industry sector they're working in is in the ESG space and so one one of the things that took me to Mars Wrigley was it's incredible sort of ESG commitments and sort of the centrality of that to the to the company's purpose and the, um, the commitment to be sustainable in a generation and the investments that are being made there, which really are relatively unique, I'm going to say, in the consumer packaged goods world, quite incredible. But then you come in as a GC and you look at the external environment and how much regulatory change is going on in that space and how much regulatory ambiguity there is and in different parts of the world, how that legal risk potentially is going to manifest yeah. over time. And uh, I think, you know, that's an area that certainly I am and I think many GCs, as I said, are, are really trying to figure out yep. how to support organisations in, in that space as best as possible. So that's an area that I'm sort of really doubling down on. And, yep. and again, that's kind of a learning journey for me. Yep. But finding good partners and, and folks with capabilities and expertise in that area is... Um, is really important. And Lisa, so I take it that is try to work out what internal skills you need to bring in, you know, what skill you need to recruit to have in it, and also what external third parties, whether they're law firms, whether they're consultant firms, whatever it is, what is the combined package of internal and external skills that you need to navigate? I imagine, well, it is the case that you and um, probably every other Fortune 1000 GC is thinking about, if not beyond, um, yeah. So if you think about a space with opportunity, um, mm. uh, well, I was just thinking in uh, a career opportunity, absolutely, um, but um, well beyond that, but certainly as a career opportunity, if you can get yourself entrenched in that space, as well mm. as part of not, not just being able to cover the, um, let's say, the legal or, or the regulatory, but really be able to cover the business yeah. aspects. Exactly. Um, that's a pretty dynamite. That would be a dynamite combination. 
Yes, yes. And look, for me, there's this kind of like slightly just personally weird, not bad, but just kind of like weird circularity to it because, yep. as I said before, like I'd done science and yes. law and had sort of done yep. um, a double major in science in organic chemistry and, and biochemistry and had actually in my first rotation when I went into private practice when I graduated worked in the environmental law section yep. at Freehills and then rotated into M&A obviously and then sort of went off and did more M&A work because there's a lot of work to be done and I wanted to work overseas and that just kind of made sense but I find myself now like yep. you know a couple of decades later without giving away any state secrets with respect yeah. to my age um thinking about environmental law again obviously a much broader canvas in terms yep. of what that encompasses today and then just the global nature of it and I'm like how weird is that yeah <laughs> But well, weird, if if you if you can be lucky enough to have a successful and long enough career, those circles that there are more and more, there is yeah. much more more and more of that circularity that you talk about because yeah. the world is actually a small. It's a big place, but it's also a small place too. When you're thinking about challenges in the future outside of ESG, what are you thinking about, and how are you thinking about, in a sense, kind of fruit? We talk about sometimes future-proofing um, yeah. the organisation and the department, the legal department. How do you think about yeah. that? Yeah. Well, look, I mean, I think um, future-proofing is it's sort of the impossible. It's it's yeah. trying to achieve the impossible in a way, isn't it? Yep. You know, because, I mean, there's a term I came across recently which really resonated for me in terms of describing what this year or the last couple of years has been like, and, and it was it sort was of talking about how we live in a world of polycrises now. Like yeah. you don't just have one crisis, like yep. a pandemic, for example, but polycrisis. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, that is so true. Um, it was sort of like the old, you know, volatile, uncertain yeah. sort of descriptors and things, but polycrisis really resonated for me. And so to your question about future-proofing, yep. I, I don't think you can. What you can do, though, is ensure that you've got in your team, um, and I'm obviously talking about the legal function, but I think it applies across different functions and, you know, organisations as a whole, ensure you've got in your team a really nice portfolio of core skills and capabilities and attributes that is quite resilient to deal with the unanticipated, to deal with the polycrisis environment that we live in today and to be able to do so in a sustainable way like there's going to be really tough moments and really difficult decisions and some backward steps it might feel like etc but to prevail and get through that and to continue to grow and deliver desired outcomes and outputs for the organization is is obviously the goal and is incredibly fulfilling but I think comes back to the people. I, I do like the way you framed that, Lisa. I really do, because I think you're spot on. Uh, I'm going to make sure that polycrisis appears in the show notes because that's the first time <laughs> I've heard that, and I think it's fantastic. Right. But you're absolutely right. Um, yeah. it's, it's the what are the foundational skills that you need or organisation needs um, to yeah. be able to deal with the unknown? Because we yeah. can all kind of deal with the known. That's the yeah. easy bit. <laughs> It's yeah. actually the preparation to deal with the unknown, um, the uncertainties, the, um, the things that you couldn't forecast. 
um, because as I said, everything else is kind of easy because if you can forecast it, you can prepare for it. And so I, I think there's something in uh, moving away from a, um, the, the term future-proofing because I think you're right. Whether it's raising children, whether it's in your own career, it is all about those foundational skills, resilience attributes to be able to deal with new situations, um, yeah. with new crises. That skill of keeping your head while everyone else is losing theirs, that's something I talk about yeah. um, a lot. It is a, and being able to think clearly um, in circumstances, yeah. yeah. Because we that's all right. want to think, well, well Sorry, there was a natural thing. The, the heart often um, takes over, but the, you know, the kind of the rational... Um, uh, you talk about left, left side and right side of brain. I'm not sure I've got that luxury. I'm not, it's usually just one side of mine that's working well. Um, that actually brings me to another point I, I want to touch on because you've had it very early, and I can tell you, I can confess, it took me a long time to get to this point. But when you talked about learning, curiosity, what I, and being really driven by that as opposed to when I think about what I was driven by, I studied law, I thought that's all I could do and my only career path was to be really good, work as many hours I could and become a partner and that was it. And any kind of sense of deviation from that was just all risk. So, but if I look back and what I now preach when I preach to my kids no 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 you should um, you should have a curious mindset you should be all about learning um, and allowing opportunities to present themselves as you're as you've got that approach and you've had that approach from it sounds like very early on tell me about that and is that something that that you as, as a leader and as a parent, is that something you think about and um, try to pass on? Mm. So, oh, great, great question. Um, I, for me, I think it was predominantly innate. Yep. And Sounds I mean, I might like articulate it. it and frame it in a way now that I certainly couldn't as, you know, a 20-year-old yes. or something articulate about myself. And I think you can you can adapt and acquire that to a point, but I don't think you can fully yeah. like cure or you know solve for that innateness. And yeah. some people just have it more than others. Yeah. And we need that diversity in in terms of how people think about things and how people go about things, don't we? And so, and I definitely think about that in terms of teams and having yeah. those you know, diverse attributes coming together in a team. Um, and so I think both my kids have it as well. And obviously I've tried to nurture that, but they're young adults now and it's kind of for them to, to find their yep. sort of, you know, fulfilment and comfort levels and so forth. Um, but I definitely generally do look for it and I probably over-index, if anything, for it um, in terms of candidates for when roles and lawyers in my team and so forth I value it really highly and again like I was saying before about you know fit and alignment for circumstances and context I think they are attributes that generally serve lawyers very well at, at this moment in time in which we find ourselves and, and um, talk a little bit about your leadership style um, and how that has evolved so I think it's 
that's a hard one to talk about yeah. in relation to yourself, isn't it? Yeah. So now you're taking me a little bit out of my comfort zone because, you know, there are other stakeholders who... Yeah. Uh, we'll see if we can get them onto the podcast. We, I, I'm targeting your children. That's one thing. We'll see if we can get others. Yep. <laughs> exactly. I think what I would say, though, is I... Probably because I was this... I mean, I'm going to call it maybe almost a little bit self-indulgent or hedonistic sort of experience-driven learner kind of person earlier in my career, I didn't actually really see myself as a leader. And it's something I still slightly struggle with, I have to say. Like, obviously, I've come to terms with it, but it's not a natural, like, that's something I have to sort of really focus on um, and think about my impact on other people and have built some muscle around that. But I, I really spend a lot of time thinking about what my impact is on people and how I influence people in a way that serves them and serves the role that they're playing in the yep. organisation as, as well. So impact and influence is how I tend to think about leadership. I'll maybe leave it there. Yeah. Um, uh, and it's you do have to be deliberate about it um, mm. because your words, the impressions you leave, the, um, the way, obviously, the way you behave, all of that mm-hmm. has, um, has so, much, so, much, so much more of an impact than it did earlier in your career. And if you're not super exactly. conscious yeah. um, about it, from the, the, the way you greet someone, from the, what you say or don't say in an elevator... <laughs> When you've Correct. got, you know, one of your team yep. members or someone else more junior yep. in the company that you haven't seen before, to all of that, um, everything is amplified, and you have to be Excuse super. <laughs> you have to be super conscious. And I think to yeah. myself, I have to work particularly harder because I, I just think about when I, I've left a particular situation, I thought to myself, I wonder if I put myself in the other person's shoes as that twenty-four year old, and I think then I cringe. I go, oh. You idiot. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wrapping up with a couple of my favourite questions, Lisa. Um, what's the hardest thing you've ever done, personal or professional, that you're prepared to share? Ooh, that is a really tricky one. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I am prepared to share. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, look, I think, um, I'm going to say having to sort of restructure teams, I, you know, like I, I have for whatever reasons just had experiences in different in-house roles where I've come into a situation, I've assessed it and, you know, spoken to some stakeholders about it and everyone's kind of gone, yeah, no, of course, absolutely. And it's like, well, why hasn't anybody, oh. like, done anything about that over the last 10 years? Oh, no. And then you <laughs> had to, yeah. And then I have, I have. Yeah. So, I mean, on the one hand, I sort of think, well, you know, I'm glad I've had the courage and whatever. Yeah. But that stuff is is really, really hard and yep. um, generally pretty thankless. And that that yeah. is what it is. But I do it, feel that. You've, I mean, that's why people hire you to be kind of true to yourself and to yeah. provide those professional views. And... Look, I they are you. I, I agree. The hardest things to do professionally, 
but in the longer term done right. They are always the right things to do, not only for the organisation, yeah. for yeah. each of the individuals too. Yeah, um, you're right. Because right. typically, whether it's in the wrong position, wrong role, or whatever it might be, um, yeah. uh, yep. that, that short-term pain. Yeah. Um, yeah. Advice that you'd give, Lisa, to your 25-year-old self, not that you sound like you would have needed a lot of advice at that time, <laughs> but, 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 but well, t- tell me, advice to your 25-year-old self. Um, relax. Yeah, I've heard that one. <laughs> Have you? Yeah. yeah. Chill, chill out a bit. Don't worry yeah. so much. Yeah, um, yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think I, I definitely would internalise a lot of stress um, and, you know, could have maybe been a bit kinder to myself in that sense um, yeah. on, on my sort of career journey, which I've, like, completely loved. Yeah. But, yeah. I think relax would have been uh, a really useful piece of advice. Yeah, and giving ourselves, it's funny, and I, I try and give this advice now when I see um, you know, someone in early stage of their career, being able to forgive yourself a little bit and cutting yourself yeah. a bit of slack. Exactly. Just cut yep. yourself a little bit of slack. Although I do wonder whether it's the fact that you didn't cut yourself some slack, which has actually I got know. you <laughs> to where you are in a successful career. So that's a little yep. that, that's a puzzle I haven't solved yet. Um, yeah. Uh, finally, Lisa, some parental advice. You've got you've got two children, nineteen and twenty, I think. They're in university. Mm-hmm. Sounds like they're pretty happy. I know they're going to come and join you for Christmas. What advice would you give others that have got, let's say, younger children? What stands mm. out for you? Oh, man. And again, like it's pretty personal, isn't it? Yeah. Depends on the dynamics and the family and, and whatever. Um, look, I, and the other thing that always used to freak me out about being a parent was unlike being a lawyer where you sort of go to university for five or six years yeah. before they let you lose on society. <laughs> Nobody teaches you. <laughs> Yep. nothing it's like you're an adult off you go all good yep. which is kind of scary for the kids too but look I think um trust your instincts mm. and and be brave like don't be afraid to be the parent yep. it's it's because there's you know and maybe that applies look I, th- I think it applies at each stage of parenting but definitely you know teenage years probably more than others when your kids are becoming yep. you know their own their own selves and undergoing that sort of natural separation process yep. as they become adults but I think I think you know it's a bit hackneyed but sort of setting those boundaries and being consistent yep. it's can be incredibly painful as a parent and as a human being but trust your instincts it's Fantastic. Uh, Lisa Mather, it's been fantastic having you on the show. I've had an absolute blast. The audience is going to love this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been great to chat, Jim. Thank you. Thank you, listeners, for tuning into the show. For more, please subscribe to the show in your favourite podcast player. If you or someone you know would make a great guest on the show, please connect with me. Jim, the host of the show, via email, jim at pursuit, P-E-R-S-U-I-T dot com. We'd love to hear from you.